that part of getting older is saying, you know, I, I know who I am, I am who I am, I have all my accumulated experience in history, and that's who I am. Hi, I'm Erica. And I'm Karen. We're the hosts of The Luster Life, a new podcast series celebrating the stories of women who broke through barriers, worked for decades, changed the workplace forever, and are now embracing the future and changing outdated assumptions about age and retirement. Each episode of The Luster Life will feature an accomplished, amazing woman who will tell her story, what she did and how she did it, what she knows now that she wishes she knew then, and how she's thinking about getting older and what the future looks like for her. Today, I'm speaking with Julie Saul, who has a very successful and influential New York gallery. The gallery specializes in photography-based art and works on paper. We met when I was buying art for my law firm in the early 1990s, and we've been friends ever since. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. Julie, just to set the stage, I'm going to give our listeners a short synopsis of your early life before you arrived in New York. You grew up in Tampa. I sure did. And you went to Tulane, staying in the South, in New Orleans. You then went to the uh, Tampa Bay Art Center and uh, now the Tampa Art Museum, and you became its director at 23, which sounds pretty impressive. Well, the director left, and, and there I, you moved, were. I moved on up. You left uh, the Tampa Art Museum the next year to get a Master of Fine Arts at the NYU Institute of Fine Arts. Uh, there you concentrated in museum studies. After graduating, you curated a show at the Bronx Museum on Mahali and a show of 20th century American photographers at the Tampa Bay Museum. What is it that drew you to New York in the first place? Well, I went to the New York World's Fair when I was 10, 11, uh, and I said, I'm going to live here one day. My grandparents had grown up, on my mother's side had grown up in New York, and they felt so worldly and sophisticated compared to my environment in Tampa. And my grandmother was a huge reader, and my grandfather was very involved in classical music, and my mom was really into art. And it just felt so much more exciting. And I think in the back of my mind, that was going to be my destination. It was sort of like the diaspora had taken my family to Tampa, and I was going to go back again. Uh, also, when I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school, I considered the possibilities. And, and they the, the best schools on the East Coast were Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and NYU. And I thought at the ripe old age of 23, 24, when I moved to New York, that I wanted to be, I didn't want to be in a college town. I wanted to be in New York City. And then once I got here, and it was a pretty exciting time. This, this was the days of the great downtown clubs, music, uh, the East Village art scene. New York was dangerous and fun, and I just wanted to stay here and be here. Some uh, people who knew you back then, which unfortunately did not include me, said that you were actually a party animal. Is that correct? Um, I had I had this really fun dual uh, life, I, I feel like it, quite serious about my studies. And after having gone to college in New Orleans, where it was uh, it was definitely less rigorous than the Institute of Fine Arts. I really had to buckle down. 
And I almost had a nervous breakdown after my first semester. I had never seen 20-page bibliographies for courses and stuff. But then there was also this really exciting downtown scene going on with clubs and music. And um, and uh, we, much less – New York was much less about food and much more about music and clubs for young people. I don't know these days. Maybe there are clubs that kids go to. But um, from what I can see, it's much more about food. You've described what you were doing here when you started out uh, in the art world. Would you have described yourself then as ambitious? And if you were, what was your ambition? I think ambition indicates a real sense of the future. And I think we were really putting one foot in front of the other. Again, I think that's something else about being really young and maybe the era, because we really started carrying portfolios around uh, we met with everybody we'd ever known to raise money. We raised $55,000 from about five or six people that a friend of mine from my junior year abroad in Italy had become a stockbroker and uh, a, a woman I went to grad school with's father liked to invest in theater and he thought, well, I'm losing so much money doing that. Why not invest <laughs> in something else? Somebody well? you know, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, we... We decided that if we were working with contemporary artists, we really needed to have a public space. So after about a year and a half of working out of her Upper West Side apartment, we raised money and opened the gallery. And we represented several artists at that point, um, uh, several of whom I still work with today, which is kind of amazing. That is remarkable. Andy Bush and Sally Gall, um, others I remain very friendly with, or we've had future interactions. We didn't have a very clear program in mind. Uh, I look back at that era, and for people who um, remember the 80s and what was going on with contemporary art, it was a super interesting transitional period. And I, again, I don't think we fully realized how vibrant it was becoming for photography. We decided to specialize in photography because here were these two young women starting out trying to be art dealers in New York in this huge established art world. And we thought it's good to have an identity and a specialty within this huge art world. And I think that that was a very good decision for many reasons. And then it was also a bad decision for some reasons. And uh, the good news was that we really did establish an identity and dig deep and show a lot of people early on who um, were really doing some of the most interesting work going on. I don't think we fully realized the difference between traditional and postmodern, and we kind of blended them. Uh, but once you're identified as someone specializing in a certain medium, it's hard to cross over. I've had a gallery now for 33 years, and to just say, I'm only going to show photography for 33 years is boring. So along the way, ceramics came in, paintings, sculpture, and yet photo photography remained our base. Just to put a little visual slant on this conversation, I bought for my law firm some Andy Bush photographs. Describe what they were, which you now refer to them, I think, as iconic. And they were I think incredible. They are. Yes. Um, so Andrew Bush uh, is the artist that we started off with, who uh, started out with this documentary series on a Irish country house. And they're absolutely romantic and beautiful. And um, uh, Janet Malcolm has written extensively on them. She's a wonderful critic. Uh, and then he moved to Los Angeles 
uh, he started sending us these crazy photographs of people driving in their cars on the L.A. freeways. And he was sitting would, next to him. Sitting, right? he, he was in a car. Too. He did this elaborate uh, for the time. I mean, this is totally analog days. This is so pre-digital. Uh, he was uh, he mounted a large format camera on the passenger side of his car and he did innumerable portraits. He also did video Living in L.A., he realized that people lived in their cars, so he created the series. They're really arresting. They're really fun. He gave them wonderful titles like um, Woman Heading East on La Cienega Boulevard, uh, Dreaming of whatever, you know, very amusing and uh, sort of semi-documentary titles. Yes, and I guess they're still up there in your your former they're, law firm. They're still up there, but I, I just... Uh... Just to finish the picture, I, I, we saw them first in your gallery. There were there were a whole bunch of them on the walls, and I just was amazed. They were just spectacular. So. And something like 20 years later, we did a revival show of them, and uh, a, a book finally came out, um, published, I think it was Yale University Press. I can't remember. But a book came out 20 years later about this work. Sounds like a lot of fun. Now, when you were starting out and you decided to go into the art world, you said it was in New York, large and well-established. Did you have women mentors? Did you have colleagues who were women? Did you have anyone helping you through this quite complicated world when you arrived? No. <laughs> I can't say that I did. I mean, one of my great regrets about graduate school is I did not find that sort of support. I worked with some amazing people, but they did not take me under their wing, I have to say. And actually, I have to say, in the world of art history at that time, the ratio of men to women uh, in the, the professors were sort of eight to one. Eight men, to one men to women. And the students were sort of ten, nine to one women. So it was a, a very old-fashioned, I don't know, just very 20th, 19th century. It was very different. It was very, very different. Um, when we when – we, actually, Lowry Sims was uh, my uh, was my boss during, during my museum studies internship at the Metropolitan Museum. And she's probably the closest – to a mentor that I had, not so much by action, but just by association. You know, she was a great model. She was a you know African American woman who was the first black curator at the Met, as far as I know. And uh, then when I moved to MoMA, uh, my my uh, supervisors were uh, that were men and. They did not really function as mentors at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, you really ha I, I wish I wished I'd had that. I often regret it and bemoan it. And I guess what my mother would say was, well, you did just fine anyway. Okay. I always <laughs> I always complained that my parents sent me to Tulane without showing me any other college. And and, you know, I you know how much I missed out by not having gone to Wellesley or, you know, Vassar. And, and my mother would just say, you know what, it's time to bury that. You've done just fine. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that I probably have to agree with her on that particular point. And living in New Orleans was pretty great. I would imagine. But living in New York's better, right? I think so. <laughs> now, there are a number of reviews over the years of the work in your gallery, and uh, quite a lot of them say that you had shows that were radical. That is the word that is used, which I think is interesting. And I think one of those, for example, one of the early ones that perhaps set the mold for this was one um, having to do with Jean Cocteau. 
And I think that show had a very particular focus, and that was how Jean Cocteau dealt with his own image. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, Okay, so one of the great things about starting in the 80s and 90s is that, again, I felt like I had a lot more freedom to focus on projects that involved fabulous travel, uh, 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 detective work, uh, and just having the freedom to uh, explore projects in depth. Uh, So Cocteau, I'm not even sure how this idea occurred to me, but somehow in the 80s, I started noticing that Jean Cocteau had had himself photographed by everybody. And I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Duchamp said, if there was a picture at a family wedding, you'd see Jean Cocteau between the bride and the groom. (laughs) (laughs) So I got this idea and I threw myself into finding every photograph I could uh, of him. And it became a kind of history of early 20th century photojournalism and photography, uh, everybody from Cartier-Bresson, uh, Irving Penn, uh, many names of uh, somewhat forgotten French uh, photographers, um, Richard Avedon, on and on and on. And it, coincidentally, many of them also photographed Colette, who was just behind him and have and self-publicizing. But getting back to the to the radical, you know, again, you can do whatever you want, but then there's the problem of uh, of paying for it. So making I, money. Of making money. So I I actually, I mean, for this project, it was fantastic. I got uh, David Godin, who's a wonderful publisher. I, I had the guts to get in touch with Cocteau's biographer, Francis Stiegmuller, who was pretty ancient at that point and had never been to Soho, where we were at the time. And he came down uh, on the subway and was just absolutely enthralled by seeing what Soho looked like in the 1980s. I, I, I'm not sure he'd ever been down. He lived in the UN Plaza. <laughs> it's really <laughs> it's quite a changed neighborhood. Quite then, a changed yes. neighborhood. And he wrote an essay for the book. Um, and yeah, yeah, these were really fun projects. They were, they were kind of groundbreaking shows, many of them. And I know I'm very familiar with a lot of this because we are currently packing up the gallery. Um, we're transitioning, and I've been looking at old slides. And all kinds of archival material about shows that we that we did um, 20, 30 years ago. In 2001, you established a relationship with Myra Kalman. Yes. Tell us about that. Tell us how you met her and what has happened since then. Okay. Well, uh, I was, of course, living on 11th Street when 9-11 happened and you know, I just get teared up thinking about it. And it really... you and I lived close by, and yes. we teared up together fairly often, yes. Um, so we all, any New Yorker who was cognizant of the New Yorker magazine knew about the New Yorkistan cover, and we all said it was the first time that we could even crack a smile that that year. And I was at a Christmas party a couple of weeks later, and uh, a good friend of mine, I was, we, were talk- I, we were talking about the New Yorkistan cover, and my friend said, well, why don't I said oh, how much I love Meyer Kalman. I loved her books. Ooh La La, Max in Love was one of my favorite books for adults and children. And she said, well, why don't you call her up and show her? And I 
sort of perked up and said, that is a great idea. So, you know, in New York, it takes about one or two degrees of separation to get a hold of somebody's phone number. And I called her up and turned out she lived around the corner from me. I'm on 11th Street. She's on 12th Street. And I walked over one fine morning. I think it was in January. And it just, it was, you know, it's what you always hope will happen with romance. It was love at first sight. We really, we just connected. And uh, about a year later, we did our first show. And we've been working together ever since. Uh, It's a great adventure. In fact, this morning, I got an email from her. So she wrote me back, I have an idea. Uh, I am designing the set for a David Byrne musical that's opening on Broadway in October. And it's going to consist of a mural that is going to be pieced together from many, many drawings. Uh, you know, it's just always an exciting collaboration. Well, I, I first came across Myra when I was reading stories to my children, and she has beautiful, beautifully illustrated books for children, and she did a beautiful book about a fireboat after 9-11 for children. This morning, I got an email from her because I'm, I'm moving to a, a studio in September, and so I, I had emailed her a few days ago. She's traveling and said, you know, let's figure out a program for the fall. So she wrote me back, I have an idea. Uh, I am designing the set for a David Byrne musical that's opening on Broadway in October. And it's going to consist of a mural that is going to be pieced together from many, many drawings. So let's do a show of those drawings and maybe some musical connection. Well, you've had quite a year in the last, quite a couple of years, I think. You were ill and you're better now, and you've had to uh, move out of your gallery because your landlord is taking over the space. Yes. So things are going to change for you, whether you had that in mind or not. How do you feel about the future? Um, I feel excited. I feel it's sort of going back to when we opened the gallery. I'm not sure. I, You know, for 33 years, we have put up about eight or nine shows a year. We've promoted them. We've written press releases. We've, in the last 20 years, put stuff on the website. In the last 10 years, posted it on social media. Uh, you know, it becomes, um, you know, really a kind of structured, uh, a very structured uh, program. And uh, we've seen the art world change enormously. Uh, so I've made the decision to... Uh, no longer uh, maintain a public gallery and to take an office and to work more on a project basis. Uh, I have worked with, and I I, uh, can't even begin to say the exciting exhibitions and relationships I've had with so many artists over these years. Um, And we'll continue to work with some of them in some ways. It's really a work in progress. We will continue to work with Myra. We've taken this office or studio space, which is kind of like a large art fair booth where there's some work in storage, there's some work on the wall. We have our computers, we have our internet, and we take it from there. I feel, to be really frank, uh, after having worked in this way for so long, that I owe it to myself to see what my life is like working in a different way. Well, it's an exciting time. You're in your mid-60s, and you talked earlier about the risks you took when you were much, much younger. 
And uh, it sounds to me as if you're willing to take some risks now. You're, as we said, full circle. Well, yes and no. I mean, the risks are I'm really minimalizing my financial risk, to tell you the truth. And that's something that I am seeking um, to have a, you know, a rather large, small operation uh, is expensive. And uh, I it is a, a huge financial responsibility. And to be really honest, um, it's a bit of a treadmill in that way. So I'm releasing myself from that, but also taking away uh, a big structure from my life. You know, I've worked with a, an amazing woman, uh, Edna Cardinale, who's my gallery director for 28 years. Uh, about the time that my partner decided to move on to other activities, uh, this young woman who was still in school became an intern. And she is an amazing person, and and uh, working with her has really what's enabled the gallery to be as successful as we are. And uh, so, yeah, that's really it's it's a big step. It's a big step, uh, and I'm excited about it. And it's going to make me work more in some ways and less in others. That's going to be the big shift. Is it going to change your identity? Well, my sister told me that I'm branded. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, that's a good thing, I believe. <laughs> she said, you know, don't worry about, you know, by being identified with the gallery. People know who you are. I think that the part of getting older is saying, you know, I, I know who I am. I am who I am. I have all my accumulated experience in history, and that's who I am. And let's see. Uh, I, I, I'll always have that. And uh, let's see. I also think it's time for me to really explore what really excites me and and try and get rid of the things that I find stressful and uh, and not fun. I think we all want to do that no I matter th- what our I think we all agree is. with that approach. And I'm taking from what you said so far that it is not part of your future plan to do nothing. To retire I couldn't do from that. everything. You know, I as as you mentioned, I haven't I've had some serious health problems, but I am a pretty energetic person, and I'm a real people person, and I can't imagine doing nothing. I also, like so many of us, am very concerned with the political situation in our country, and I uh, think we're about to embark on a very, very crucial period in this country's history, and I really want to be involved in it in a way that I feel useful and um, effective. There have been time. I mean, one thing that's been really great, I cannot write huge checks to charities, um, but many of the artists I represent have been incredibly generous in donating works for all kinds of causes uh, through the gallery. Um, we raised uh, $36,000 uh, the week of the uh, Women's March for Planned Parenthood through a print sale of Myra's. We give to everything from private schools to political campaigns, um, the, the list, it sometimes comes from the artist's interest, sometimes through my artists um, or various museums or organizations. But I, I, I love that we're able to do that. And, um, and so that's a fun part of what we do that I hope to continue to do. Well, Julie, ever since I've known you, I've been very inspired by your approach to everything. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. Good fun. So unlike Julie, we worked in the same institutions, not you and me the same, but I worked for one company, one firm for decades, more than 20, closer to 30, 40, as did you. 
And now we're transitioning to a very different part of our lives. What do you, what do you find is the most difficult part of that? Right now, it's a lot easier than it was at first. At first, uh, my imagination was not functioning well. So I couldn't really see anything other than what I had been doing. Now that I've been at it for a couple of years, thinking about other ways to go about living, I see very clearly that moving away from something you've done for many decades opens you up to new experiences and new ideas. Uh, you need to use your imagination. You need to be open to people and things. As you have mentioned uh, in the past, you need to be open to failure, but you need to be open. And there's a whole world out there that when you worked as hard as we did in the way that we did, we loved our jobs. We had a wonderful time, but there is a whole world out there that we could not experience very much because we were working so hard and now we can experience it and it's a blessing. I would agree with that. I think that the hardest part about change generally is letting go of the things that you need to let go of. I think letting go of all the things that we had gotten used to, both in terms of what we, everything, our entire lives was the hardest part about it. I think that the best part about it is the ability to say yes to basically everything when before we were kind of in a no, you know, no, I can't commit to this or no, I can't do that because I don't know what's going to happen or I don't, I can't guarantee I can do this or that or the other thing. Now, I think between the two of us, while we clearly say no to things that have no interest to us whatsoever, if there's a scintilla of interest or it could be interesting, we say, yes, at least we'll try it. And that has led to not only amazing experiences, but new people and new, new things that we never even thought about being interested in. So I think that the change piece of it is ex has turned out to be the best part about it. Julie, of course, had a very different career than we did, in part because she basically worked for herself all this time. And she had to change over time, too, as the art field changed pretty drastically with uh, technology and internationalism and a lot of things uh, coming at her. And then finally, her landlord uh, took over her space. So she had to decide to have to to have another gallery or not. And she's made that decision and she's changed a great deal. And it's been fascinating to watch her open herself up to new ideas completely, new ways of, of connecting with artists and connecting with clients and showing work and being uh, the same curator of work that she always was, but in a very different way. Sort of as you and I have said many times, we are the people we always were, and we stand on a platform we created. We're just going in new directions. Julie, Julie's story is inspiring. You know, I think the interesting thing in what you said about change is you couldn't initially visualize what it looks like. And I think what was so hard for us is that we didn't have any role models for this new chapter just like we didn't have any role models before. But before, at least it was a physical plant. We could understand, we could see our role there. We could understand where we would be and we changed how we would look in it. But it was a success in the corporate world was, you could visualize it. I think 
Luster's purpose in large part is to put a visual image to that so that it's not so difficult to imagine what a successful retirement would look like. Make sure to tune in to the next episode of The Luster Life. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and see you next week.